0: I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady, this week they got Brady. We're doing it, we're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey,
1: as a matter of fact, moving forward
0: from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. Alright, so, we're going team by team. I would be very careful about sling stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I yeah, like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. We got the good version of Josh Allen on Thursday Night Football, and that makes the Buffalo Bills extremely difficult to beat. And despite a late rally by Baker Mayfield and the Bucks, and some very strange plays late in that rally, the Buffalo Bills end up winning their game, getting their season back on track, and we'll talk about that and more on this Friday edition of the PFF NFL Podcast. How's it going, Brad?
1: it's going great yeah you mentioned we got a a good Josh Allen still think it's interesting down in the red zone not really willing to run with him and you know led to the missed fourth down and and some bad rushes from Latavius Murray so probably even more of a ceiling there for that offense particularly converting down the red zone
0: yeah it's it's interesting they were talking a lot on the broadcast about how you know the narrative in in Buffalo had been we need to run Josh Allen more like why are we not tapping into this incredible skill set that he has and you know that it had been the deliberate thing from the offense to try and scale back some of the ask for josh allen and so that he isn't responsible for carrying the entire team and then even in this game you know they they ran him a couple times early and he got dinged up and he's getting looked at in the medical tent and it's like well you know this is the tension right is is how much do you tap into these plays versus the risk to your star quarterback without whom the season is a waste of time, right? Like, if Josh Allen isn't there, forget it. Everybody might as well pack up and go home. But this is part of what makes Josh Allen so difficult to defend. Like, if, if he is doing that stuff, if he's running the ball, if he's part of the design run game, you don't have good answers for that on defense. But it is rolling the dice every time you do it.
1: Yeah, and i think the key that you're starting to notice more and more especially as we've seen them obviously not yesterday with the loss of dawson knox but you know they, they try to add 12 personnel to their you know arsenal i think they were 31st or 30th or maybe even dead last last season in the usage of two tight ends but teams very quickly have realized they can still just sit and nickel and be fine against the run against this team even if they do have you know you know a multiple tight end set so his his rushing ability even just stripping out how good he is he is at it and everything he adds from a you know schematic standpoint when you have to worry about his legs maybe keep a spy in for the you know opposing linebacker it's also just they don't still have any respect on the ground otherwise and they really can't you know force heavier boxes or or do different things to get the defense to give them better or more advantageous looks no matter what they do so it's almost amplified you know Allen's Allen's you know benefit is almost amplified because of that
0: yeah, and, and so this was a strange game where the score ends up being quite close, but it like the Buffalo Bills had this well in hand, and even so, you know, Tampa Bay are in that classic situation of, okay, we're two scores down, we need to get two different touchdown drives to, to win this thing. They end up getting the first one through a sequence of bizarre plays and extend it, and then they get the two-point conversion, right? And, and so now it's just a... Uh, a six-point game with that one touchdown drive needed to win it. And, you know, it ends up being decided on a, a Hail Mary. But my point being, it looked quite close with the final score and the fact that the Bucks had the game and uh, theoretically were one play away, right, from winning it. However, it wasn't really that close. Like, the Bills had their way with them on offense, particularly in the first half, and their defense was just crushing Tampa Bay in the second half when they were trying to execute this Comeback and somehow it kept the drive kept getting extended or you know, penalties or whatever, and we end up with a game that looks reasonably close.
1: Interesting because they kept punting and pinning them deep in their own end zone, and it you know it worked a lot of the time. You know, and you had multiple inside the five, and you knew the Buccaneers, you know, almost had a safety from Baker Mayfield. I-, I thought he was for sure down on that one throw and he did get it out before his knee came down. But then you're also sitting there being like all right, Sean McDermott has now punted, what was it, three times on fourth and about three, maybe right. four, from across the <laughs> midfield, and I get that you have a lot of faith in your defense to not let this Bucks offense score, or at least not score quickly, but it could have, in hindsight, we could have viewed it as a disaster if Chris Godwin catches that ball and we're saying, yeah, the Bills could have just put this game away, but instead just played the field position battle, which did, again, work a couple times during the game. Also, though, have you seen a funnier or just weirder drive then a 17-play, 92-yard drive that took seven and a half minutes with three fourth down conversions. And then both the touchdown and the two-point were like deflected passes. Yeah. I think it was the funniest drive I've ever seen in my entire life.
0: It was ridiculous. It's the kind of it's the kind of drive that only Baker Mayfield can be the quarterback for. Like it made no sense. It had you know a a healthy dose of like Baker Moxie, which was in that game throughout. It's like it felt like every play was Baker ad-libbing, shrugging his way out of contact, fighting through stuff, getting the ball out. There was one – I can't remember if it was the touchdown drive or, like, the final drive where he ends up delivering a pass, like, out of the grasp of Von Miller, who just, you know, whooped the right tackle, got around him. Baker sort of shrugged off the the tackle attempt, tried to, like, jump over uh, Von Miller's, like, body on the ground, who, like, caught his ankle from behind – and Baker's like trying to hop his way out of the contact and just fires the ball out to the flat, ends up being a completed pass. I'm like, that. that's crazy. That shouldn't have been a
1: catch. Yeah, I think that was either a tight end or a shot white who may have gotten like a first down or, or a decent chunk gain. I think I remember the exact player talking about. Yeah, it was, it truly was bizarre. We did see, I think Baker. He was under pressure a ton. Uh, we have it as 18 of his dropbacks. He completed six passes and took four sacks. And we've kind of been waiting for that regression. His pressure to sack rate was insanely low so far this season, especially compared to his historical averages. But I actually still do think, even though we are, you know, kind of seeing that reverse a little bit, I still do think he has become a better player under pressure for whatever reason. Uh, you know, him and Dave Canales and. Canales, I don't think, called the greatest game. I mean, you're running the ball a lot down two scores in the second half. But, but yeah, for whatever reason, I, I do think he, you know, we see a little bit less of that, you know, stupidity, or that's probably the wrong word, <laughs> but some of the Baker magic that, that we saw in years past, I think he has kind of turned a corner in that regard, even in a game where he did finally take, a handful of sacks, unlike the first six games of the year for the Bucks.
0: But it also watching the game, like it felt like he had way more sacks than that. Like it, it felt like every every play, he's under siege, getting just annihilated in the pocket. And you look at the score, the the sort of numbers at the end of it, you're like wow, he was actually only sacked that period of time. This felt like a Sam Howell, Daniel Jones type of game where we're going to get like nine sacks at the end of this thing, and it, it kind of wasn't. And a lot of that was. Baker somehow getting out of a lot of these plays, like the safety or that play we talked about with Von Miller, there was another four or five of these that maybe should have resulted in sacks and didn't. And that's not to say, you know, every one of them, Baker made a positive play out of it, but sometimes there's a positive play in not having the negative play, right? Not the, the safety not resulting or the sack for Von Miller not being there and just getting the ball out of your hands, almost regardless of where it
1: ends up the thing is the thing right i mean we're we're joking about needing 17 plays in 8 minutes you know they basically had a 4 minute offense when they needed to be in a 2 minute offense but you can pull that off if you don't get yourself in second and 15 third and 15 etc and they did have some penalties early on in that drive that almost ended it but but yeah he he has you know avoided some of those negatives it felt like he could have got like you said he could have gotten sacked 10 times last night and i think it was only 4 in total so it's interesting, like, you know, the offense, obviously we've seen the warts, they just simply cannot run the football, um, you know, and then it's going to be up and down to where you play a team like Buffalo with it kind of sits back in zone and lets you feast underneath, and you don't have the explosives to Mike Evans. Obviously the touchdown was his second catch of the entire game. Like, I, I think it's going to be hard for the Bucks to really, you know, move quickly and not do what they did last night. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's tough sledding for that offense right now.
0: Yeah. Um and I agree with you. I think Baker is still playing pretty well. Like this is as good as we've seen from Baker Mayfield since you know the the last good year in Cleveland. And then obviously the the shoulder injury the following year and, and the disaster that his career became after that. But this is as close to the good version of Baker Mayfield as we've seen for a while despite um, the problems around him. Uh okay, here's one thing. I've decided it's time. It's starting to annoy me that pass interference simply doesn't count on Hail Marys. Like, when you watch that play, which, by the way, was very catchable at the end. Like, that's another play that kind of Baker did well. Like, he... I thought that that play was going to end with him being either under pressure or sacked or hit and the ball never ending up in the end zone. And then somehow he made the right move back there, found himself space, stepped up and delivered, whatever that was, a 50-yard, 55-yard strike... Right to where it was supposed to drop. Now, once it drops there, it's chaos, right? Any, it's all bets are off. The quarterback doesn't control that. But he getting it there was an achievement for Baker Mayfield in the first place. And it basically ends up dropping like right to Chris Godwin, who has no idea that that's happening because somebody has attempted to tackle him along the way, and he's busy like spinning trying to locate the ball. But like when you watch those replays of pass of the the Hail Mary and the sort of guy who's reaching the end zone. Everybody is just grabbing hold of each other. I'm talking both sides here, which is part of the reason it's not getting called. But, like, it's just a free-for-all of pass interference in every direction. And you're like, the rules don't change. Like, it's still illegal to do all of this. Why have we decided that just because it's pass interference and the highest leverage play of the
1: game, we don't want to call it? Yeah, Kate Otten had two dudes that were just, like, draped all over him uh, and basically tackled him to the ground It is interesting. I I guess maybe the enforcement is tied to, you know, they always say like each side of the ball is entitled to their space. And, and, you know, on a certain route, if you run into a defender or something like that, say, yeah, well, he's allowed to be there and occupy that territory. You can't just bowl him over. When guys are getting into the end zone, they're both already there. And then the ball gets thrown. Is it is it a matter of like, well, yeah. I mean, they're all standing still because they're trying to just box out, right. like getting a rebound for this hail mary. But are they allowed to jockey and and throw elbows and whatever? But yeah, I mean, there were you could have called like three different P- uh, DPIs or OPIs, I guess, um, on that particular hail mary. And like you said, it's like that was a game deciding throw. But yeah, the funny thing is. Godwin, if Godwin turns around a half second earlier, I think we're talking about yeah. a Buccaneers win. Uh gotta give credit to Todd Bowles. Uh maybe the last coach I would expect to go for two down eight. But yeah. uh, maybe someone in that building deserves credit as well, Jackie Davidson or someone who does some research there. Uh shout out to whoever, you know, made that decision go through.
0: It reminds me a lot of soccer where um, you know, when it's like a free kick and the ball's going into the box, like the laws of contact no longer apply, right? Just because if you did apply them, it would be a penalty and they don't want to give a penalty. Like there's a degree to which there is an unwritten rule that if the if the situation is simply too high leverage, we're just going dis- to disapply the rules. And that's what happens with Hail Marys. It's like, if we get involved in this, the officials determine the outcome of the game effectively, right? It goes from being a Hail Mary, an almost 0% chance of winning to we're giving you the ball at the 1 with one play left to win the game, which is at the minimum like a 50-50 chance to win the game. Officials simply do not want to make that call. And soccer is the same thing, right? In the box, during a free kick, contact happens that anywhere else on the field is an immediate free kick. We're not even talking about it. It's obvious, right? The guy has got two arms around him and is wrestling him to the ground. That's a clear and obvious free kick. But it's just before a free kick in the penalty area. And if we call it that, we're giving that team a penalty, and we don't want to do that because that changes the outcome of the game. I'm, I, I understand why, and I do agree with the idea that nobody wants the officials determining the outcome of games. But I feel like we've let it go too far in the other direction where it's prison rules on these plays, and that's not good either.
1: Yeah, there has to be a line to a degree, Um, you know, I feel like maybe end of the first half, they probably are more willing to, because like you said, they're not just determining the outcome of the game in theory, if they do it at halftime, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the the final play, Uh, there could have been an untimed down last night, I suppose, but, but yeah, last night, I think it was one of the more egregious I've seen, but I think like you said, if you watch the playback, like it was both sides, like I think, yeah. Mike Evans was on the ground, but I think he took two bills defenders down to the ground with him in the back of the end zone too. So it was it was just chaos and mayhem on that last play.
0: But that's like I think that's a product of this like free for all attitude which is it what it does is means everyone gets involved in it, right? And makes the entire thing just a ridiculous farce of wrestling before the ball arrives, which means it's never going to get caught by anybody because everyone's just getting rugby tackled to the ground and nobody's even paying attention to where the ball is. I feel like if you actually enforce the rules a little bit, it wouldn't be everybody doing it. It would be one guy doing it, and then you could actually penalize it properly where penalize the one guy that's tackling somebody when everyone else is at least theoretically trying to do what they're supposed to do. When you don't call anything, everybody's going to start doing it because now you've basically just signaled that Pass interference doesn't apply on this play, so go nuts.
1: I guess maybe part of it, too, is, you know, in the NFL game, obviously, it's going to be a spot foul, whereas in college, you know, it's right. still just a 15-yard enforcement. so And you know, Hail Mary is basically guaranteed to be a 50-plus-yard penalty yeah. uh, if you do call DPI. So, yeah I don't know. It's maybe something to look at. Who knows? But it, it is the, – the last night was pretty, like, absurd how, how bad it got in the, in the end zone.
0: The Kate Auden part is funny. Like, I'm looking at the, yeah. the replay now, and he has two guys literally just – grab hold of him and stop him going into the end zone. I mean, read any definition of pass interference, like impeding the receiver, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't get much more of a dictionary definition than two guys literally grabbing hold of him and preventing him from getting into the end zone. Like, that is as clear a pass interference as you can get by any definition of it. Um, See, I like these shows, Brad, where you're on because we get a chance to talk about stuff like this, where Steve wants no part of discussing officials in any capacity ever So, we have to take these opportunities where we can get them. Um, Anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about the trade deadline before we get into the injury breakdown later in the show. But first, we got to tell you about securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com pffnfl. That's meetfabric.com. Slash PFFNFL MeetFabric dot slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Brad. The uh, the trade deadline is approaching. So let's. Uh, we've already seen some movement. Um, Kevin Byard going to the Eagles. Obviously, we talked about that earlier in the week. So let's start with the first question. When is the trade deadline? And then. Um, how much activity do you anticipate?
1: Yeah, so the trade deadline is Tuesday, Halloween, October thirty first. Uh, every deal's got to be done before four p.m. Eastern. You know, sometimes we get some buzzer beaters we don't hear about until four o five, but they obviously, uh, you know, are, are consummated by the teams before that. But unfortunately, after last year, we had ten trades the week before the deadline. We had some blockbusters with you know Bradley Chubb and Christian McCaffrey and you know big T.J. Hawkinson, etc. I thought we might get the same thing. There was a clear delineation between the good teams and the bad teams. I think with all the one in five teams, I think went four and one this past weekend. Then you had Minnesota beat San Francisco. I don't think it's going to be super active. The the big names I'm keeping an eye on still are the guys in Washington. Uh, You know, one of those two edge defenders. I do think one of them is going to get moved. Um, And then I guess Derrick Henry in Tennessee, maybe, but, I think that the results Sunday are going to matter in a lot of games.
0: Okay, um, so how many teams do you anticipate being sellers effectively at the the trade deadline?
1: Tennessee probably still the biggest one. We obviously know already. Kevin Byard, like you said, uh, has moved. The Washington thing is just a unique circumstance where I just uh, they cannot retain both players because of uh, you know one franchise tag, two pending free agents. So. I don't know if I'd call them a seller overall. I think it's just a unique unique situation where you'd be dumb not to get more than a compensatory pick. And then the rest I think will be smaller. But, like, you know, if the Giants lose, they move like a Paris Campbell. If Minnesota loses, do they make a smaller move? I still don't really buy it. I think that win kind of changed everything. And if they def- if they win and and are 500 and 2-0 in their division, I don't think they're selling anything. Right. Who else is bad? I'm mean, Chicago. I don't think is going to sell. Um, Does Carolina get
0: involved in shipping off Brian Burns because they stink and you know he's their first round pick if they want one?
1: They probably should, but I don't think they're going to. The sense I get is he's going to stick around. They'll they'll try to continue to find a way to to work out an extension after placing the franchise tag is my guess. I think there was a report from someone like they're they're not going to trade him. Um, I haven't heard that personally, but but it's kind of the sense I get as well. But, yeah, and then, and then it gets smaller. But I do think, like, all of these competitive teams, like, I don't think Philly is done. I don't think San Francisco is, is can be ruled out for making a move. They've cleared a ton of cap space for, for – more for carryover. But I think they would be open to making a move. Um, you know, Cleveland and Baltimore, all these running back injuries. Are they the Henry teams? Are they in the Dalvin Cook market, potentially, I think is interesting. So, yeah, it's just like – when I say there's going to be not movement, there would be smaller moves, but – The two guys I mentioned are, you know, three, I guess, with Washington being a duo. Maybe DeAndre Hopkins, you know, in Tennessee. But I think the rest is going to be your Terrace Marshalls, your Paris Campbells, you know, your your Hunter Renfros, like your Carl Lawsons. Good players, sure. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't characterize those as blockbusters if they do happen.
0: In a general sense, are these trades driven by the buying teams or the selling teams? Or is there just no generalization to be made? Like, it feels like actually we we tend to frame this in terms of all oh, these bad teams are now it's a fire sale right for sale sign on the front lawn we're getting rid of everything with value we're shipping off anybody we're getting draft picks we're shipping we're getting rid of cap space but actually it's more a case of like a team that has a weakness or has lost a guy to injury or has a space for something or you know there's an obvious potential area those guys are out shopping right they're looking for a player that could come in and potentially fix a a problem spot or give them some depth in an area that's now an issue and or potentially a team that you know is better than they thought they were going to be and needs to sort of cement that over the course of the season is that the right dynamic or is it just case by case it's random
1: it is case by case, but I would lean more towards like sellers making it clear a guy is available again. And there's always this kind of like everyone freaks out. Are they shopping him or is he are they just answering the phone? There's always kind right. of silly, you know, like <laughs> jargon of what exactly is happening. But I would say it's more seller driven. I mentioned Denver. Obviously, you know, I think it's clear one of those receivers could be on the move as well. Maybe Josie Jewel at linebacker. <clears throat> I don't think Patrick Sertan gets moved. I feel like Justin Simmons was maybe a Philadelphia candidate. I don't know who else needs a great safety uh, in his caliber. Uh, Garrett Bowles keeps getting mentioned, but he's a very good tackle. I, you know, he's 30, 30, 31 years old. I don't know why you would trade that piece. I know he's you know mentioned some frustration, but I would say it's more seller-driven. I would, but but again, like, you know, I think that we hear the word shopping and we think the teams are like, hey, please take this guy off our hands. Right? That's not what it is. It's like, hey, if you wanted him, if you're interested – we could fi- we could find a middle ground and and part ways with this player
0: this is all like um it's all un sort of regulated there's no system for this right it's just sort of teams putting it out there like i feel like we need to i feel like the nfl is kind of missing a trick here we could create a thing around this we could have like a designation right this guy is on the transfer list this guy is on the we're open to phone calls list this guy is on the not in a million years forget about it list right let's start putting these guys in actual firm designated publicly available buckets and create like a whole drama around this thing
1: I would say, as fun as that is, and, and you know, it sounds like, like a fantasy thing where you throw on, like, on my trade block. Right. I'll say this, too, and it ties into, not to get on a soapbox, but, like, all the rumor accounts that just pump out absolute garbage. Like, it it gets into buildings, and these GMs have to, like, talk to players and be like, hey, is, I won't name one of the many that you all know who I'm referring to. Is this report actually real? Are you guys, at-? and it, they have to say no, like, And it it, it causes serious problems, and they have to manage these relationships that, yeah, it's part of their job, but, but it's derived from absolutely nothing in reality. So I think that's probably more what it speaks to, is if a player caught wind that he was on the hey, I'm available list, he'd probably get pretty pissed off, which, you know, I think is understandable. Uh, so, yeah, that that's why I think that, that wouldn't be a thing. But I get it. Yeah, like you said, transfer portal uh, type approach. Uh, you know, in theory, I don't hate the idea.
0: It kind of feels, though, that we're already there. Like, they're already fighting these fires that may not even exist because of these accounts you're talking about and because of the rumor mill and everything. You know, like, people are people assume it's happening anyway and if they assume it's happening, they're probably talking about it and reporting it, which means it's getting back to them. Now, the only The only thing they have in their favor at the moment is the plausible deniability and being able to lie Like like to say, no, you're not on the trade block. We're not listening to phone calls. If you'll excuse me, I have call waiting on the other line, but it's not relevant to you. Don't worry about it. Right. Like that goes out the window. If you actually do formalize the system and he's right there on the list saying I'm listening to phone calls for you
1: yeah no for sure for sure i I would just say and every building is of course different but my perception again i'm not you know when you see all these various accounts i i think if you don't know a top three person in a building so that's gm assistant gm and maybe head coach in some cases or whatever odds are you're not even getting correct information so it's like these random dudes that have hashtag sources and and know these things and know these trades are close and yada yada Hey, put it to them. Maybe maybe they know some GM somehow, some way. I, I, I'm a little skeptical that's uh, that's the case.
0: All right, let's talk about some of the biggest names and where they might actually end up. Um, I'm fascinated by Derrick Henry, first and foremost. Obviously, the Titans put the for sale sign on the franchise. They're looking to ship pieces away. They already did it with Kevin Byard. Derrick Henry is, is one of the obvious candidates to be moved. And Derrick Henry, for his career, has been as outlier a running back as you get in today's NFL in terms of most of the rules don't seem to apply to him, right? Uh, All the things we think we know about running backs don't seem to impact Derrick Henry. And that's relevant because, you know, he's 29 years old, he's got a reasonably sizable contract attached to him, and these are things that would ordinarily make teams run for the hills and not want any part of this. But is Derrick Henry's history, and the fact that he's always been an outlier going to make more teams interested in Derrick Henry than you would normally expect?
1: I think so. I think it has to, right? Like I, you know, put out a video about some of my top candidates. And like you said, everyone's expecting the, the wheels to fall off. And even just looking at the last couple of years, he's still one of the elites at the position. But you mentioned the contract he has a $10.5 million salary this year, the final year of his deal. I think Tennessee would have to eat a decent chunk, if not all of that. You know, the trend we've kind of seen across the NFL now, where the incumbent team converts a bunch of the salary, makes it cheaper. They, in turn, do get a better draft pick, you know, as a result. But I would imagine the teams that are calling there would ask Tennessee to do that. And maybe they are open to doing it and getting better draft capital. Because that's really, you know, I think what the key should be for them. Rather, you know, save a couple million dollars is not as important as getting maybe, you know, a third-round pick, whatever. I think the AFC North teams are the ones to watch here that we mentioned, just because there are so many injuries in Baltimore and Cleveland. It always helps when you have two competitive teams that are trying to beat each other, maybe in the market for the same player. We of course, you know, know about last year when, when the Chicago bears beat out the green Bay Packers for chase Claypool services, obviously didn't go too great, but, um, but yeah, so I, I would keep an eye on them. It just makes the most sense to me. Uh, and they certainly, both those teams are top five in cash spending. They probably would need the conversion from the Tennessee side.
0: If like if that part is happening, the, the cash conversion, so that it becomes a relatively cheap deal for somebody to pick up, um, doesn't Buffalo scream like Derrick Henry? I mean, we saw, like, Derrick Henry could be what Latavius Murray was supposed to be in that game and wasn't able to be right like a guy that's actually the power back picking up tough yardage so that you don't have to run josh allen into the teeth of defenses the whole time like derrick henry and lost in all this right titans have a garbage offensive line they're not good derrick henry is still derrick henry i mean he's he's looked pretty damn good despite running behind a bad offensive line i feel like you put derrick henry in any of these teams he looks pretty awesome
1: I think the one question with Buffalo is, and Henry, like, I think it's a pretty crazy story. Like, when he was early on not playing a ton, even though he was a second round pick, and they almost apparently traded him or, or moved on. And someone, a teammate, I forget who it was, was like, "You got to give this guy like twenty plus carries and let him like work his way into a game." Right. And I think a lot of running backs say that. I know Dalvin said it yesterday. I'm not sure. I think that's the issue for him <laughs> in New York right now. But uh, with all due respect, but um, with Henry, I think it's true. It has is been Buffalo. That's the thing. Is Buffalo doing that uh, an efficient approach to their offense? Is right. kind of my question.
0: Yeah, no, that's the crazy thing. It's like all the cliches that were always thrown about with running <laughs> yeah, backs. You yeah. know, like, you get stronger in the fourth quarter, you need to give him 25 touches, all this kind of stuff. Like, statistically, it's crap for every running back in the NFL, except Derrick Henry, where there actually is yeah. evidence to say the dude gets stronger in the fourth quarter. The more carries you give him, the harder he runs, the better production you get. Like... All of the sort of crazy things, the rules that apply to running backs, do not seem to apply to Derrick Henry. He is this weird, unique case. Um, I think that's a fair point, though, that like, I don't know if Buffalo is set up to give him the kind of workload that would best maximize him, whereas you know, Baltimore or Cleveland certainly are better set up for that.
1: Yeah. No, that's the only point there. But yeah, I mean, you know, they, they did, everyone kind of had their, uh, wind horse, uh, you know, thing go on when they restructured a contract last week with Deion Dawkins, you know, I'm always the boring wet blanket. They had had less than a million dollars in cap space. They needed that just to operate, but maybe they do, maybe they do, you know, big win last night going into a mini buy, maybe they make a move, but I also think for them, I mean, you're starting Josh Norman at corner now. Like, I think you probably have other positions you want might want to address besides, you know, adding a running back. And James Cook's been better this year than last year.
0: Yeah, no, he's looked good. Um, I want to pitch you, before we get on to the, the Washington edge rushers, I want to pitch you my idea, which has been told, I've been told is dumb by two separate people. I'm going to take a swing at you and basically see if I can find somebody that backs me up. Um, the Carolina Panthers should trade for DeAndre Hopkins because it's cheap, right? They they paid him the money. He's getting paid nothing, essentially, for the rest of this year. Uh, they desperately need a number one wide receiver, any receiver that Bryce Young can have some confidence in. I think it makes everything better this year, and it doesn't mean, it, like, it's irrelevant that it's not a long-term deal because right now your single driving force, if you're Carolina, should be ensuring that Bryce Young does not get damaged by this year. And I feel like... Like, if I'm wrong and actually him playing badly this year has no relevance whatsoever in year two, three, four, all it did is cost you like a mid-round draft pick. If I'm right and it's actually important that he doesn't sink and drown this year, then for the for the cost of a mid-round draft pick and nothing else, you potentially saved your franchise quarterback.
1: You found a supporter. Yeah, I don't yes. think you're dumb at all. We got oh. Who called you dumb? Steve? Steve, Steve
0: and Rick Spielman called me dumb.
1: Well, that's going to happen. That, that's bound to happen. Uh, Rich people thinks a lot of people are dumb. Uh, you know, And he, he was successful for a very long time, so he's built up the cachet to say that. But, yeah, like, I uh, I hear you where, look, they, they obviously don't have a first-round pick and maybe don't want to give up a – if it's a fourth or less, then I say go for it. I found them – you can't give up a third. You're not going to get a second for Andre Hopkins. but. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think building confidence in a young quarterback. You bring a guy who you know played at Clemson in DeAndre Hopkins, so has connections with the Carolina area. Yeah, and like you said, they already paid him about a ten million dollars signing bonus. So you're bringing in a, a minimum, near minimum contract, and then you figure out next year as you go forward. I don't hate the idea. It's not about contending. It's just about make sure Bryce Young goes into year two feeling good about himself. That's worth the fourth round pick yeah. uh, in my mind.
0: Yeah, and not just that, but like. Being functional, you know, if that allows Bryce Young to operate for the rest of this year, I think it's it's relevant. Like, I was pitching this idea in the offseason when you would have to sign him for more money and yada yada, and Panthers fans were mad because they were like, look, you know, he's not going to be, he's old, he's not going to be good by the time Bryce Young's good. It's like, it's not about, like, them syncing up in their careers, it's about year one and two for Bryce Young, the guy needs to be able to function, and we've seen With the current setup, he can't, really. Like, this is why I was talking about signing DeAndre Hopkins in the offseason, because I think he would let him be operational right now and have somewhere to go with the ball and at least maybe learn and develop in a bad situation. Without that, I don't know that he's developing at all, and like potentially you're actually damaging him and harming his development by not letting him grow and get better and, you know, operate during the course of the season. So... Maybe it was a better deal when you didn't have to give up a draft pick to make it happen in the offseason, but because the money's been paid and, like, it's cheaper now than it was in the offseason, it's just costing you a draft pick instead. So either way, I still think it's a good deal (laughs) that you should go do it.
1: Yeah, I don't hate it. Or maybe, you know, explore Cortland Sutton, different kind of player, but, you know, a big-body contested catch-type guy that can, again, just build some trust, build some – you know some some faith in Bryce Young, and he's not you know has three years left on his deal, and maybe you give up less draft capital there because it's not converted to take on a bigger salary. But yeah, I mean Carolina has been trading away picks and eating bad contracts for like five years, and it was it made absolutely zero sense from basically 2019 through this year. If you're ever going to do it, like now will be the time when you're not just cycling through journeyman quarterbacks, you have a rookie contract guy. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. You're not dumb. You're not dumb, Thank Sam.
0: You. Sam. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes it's just important to hear that.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, all right, let's talk about the
0: Washington duo, Montez Sweat and Chase Young. Um, I saw a report saying teams have been calling about Sweat, but not Young. Uh, is that what you're also hearing, or is are both of them essentially equally likely to get moved?
1: I think either one could get moved. Um, I think that the report from Nikki Javala, who does great work, I think, for the Washington Post, um, it was that only Sweat had received an actual offer, uh, okay. whereas Young, they probably had phone calls, but no offer had been made. I do know that offers have been made for Montez Sweat, and I don't know personally that offers have been made for Chase Young, so I guess I have heard the same. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there are a handful of teams that would probably would be interested in either player, but... Um, uh, my It's interesting, right? So look at it. So Sweat obviously has been healthier, more durable throughout his career. I think has a higher floor. But Chase Young, I mean, inarguably has a higher ceiling. Is, you know, top 10 for us in pass rush win rate, pressure rate. Is now playing, you know, not it's not on a limited snap count. like We've been saying that forever. But when he's been playing, you know, 300 snaps a season, he's now getting a full workload and still looking dominant on a snap-to-snap basis. My estimation is... Washington probably wants to get blown away with an offer here but teams realize you don't really have leverage like we talked about like why would I send you a first round pick for either guy right. um, and I think that might be what holds up you know either move getting done and then again if they beat Philly probably don't do it if they lose to Philly you know maybe they're like all right let's just move a guy and, and get smart here
0: where do you think makes sense for either one of them to land
1: I think Atlanta is interesting just because I think their edge rush group for us is bottom five in pressure rate and pass rush win rate right now. And their defense is awesome. And, and that's without having a consistent pass rush presence off the edge. You have the rookie contract quarterback. You have the, all your weapons are on rookie contracts as well. Good offensive line. That's, you know, all, all I think on solid deals. So maybe they get in the mix there, you know, win the division, you know, once and for all and, and, and kind of, you know, build some momentum going forward. Look, the Niners did not play well at all against Minnesota, could barely generate any pressure. And we know they love defensive line and are never afraid to make a move there. I think Chicago still could be in the mix here. Why not try to go out and get an edge rusher? That, you know, probably the worst unit on their team. Uh, you know, I can go is like the one guy who's gotten pressure. He's on a one year, you know, expiring deal. So those teams make sense. Jacksonville, I still think, makes sense. Um, you know, Baltimore, I guess, but, but yeah, Jacksonville and, and those other contenders that need pass rush, uh, I think, makes sense as well.
0: What about uh, Detroit? Imagine Detroit with a viable alternative to Aiden Hutchinson rather than relying on Hutchinson being the only source of pressure, particularly if this is a team that does believe in themselves and, and thinks they're going to be playing deep into January, into February even. Um, I mean, that's, that's the kind of move that can move the needle, right? Like, right now, if somebody shuts down Aiden Hutchinson, they don't have pass rush. If you bring in a Montez Sweat or a Chase Young for the other side, that's a different deal.
1: Oh, 100%. Great shout. And, and I think they would also fit in terms of, you know, good run defender for Montez Sweat. Young's pretty good against the run, too. But, you know, solidify the entirety of that defensive line, which has fun pieces and good pieces. But, like, right now, it's a Lee McNeil and Aiden Hutchinson and then rotational players, right? So you bring another legit dude. I'll throw one more in, too. The Houston Texans are three and three with an awesome rookie contract quarterback, with an awesome Will Anderson Jr. Like and opposite of Will Anderson, there's nothing really to speak of on that defensive line. Maybe they are buyers and think they have something cooking there as well. You know, kind of like Detroit, like you said, like you know, that's really. We think we're close, and this could push, or, you know, propel us to higher heights.
0: Or even like, I mean, Houston aren't necessarily the uh, we think we're close type of team, but like once you've decided you're in a good spot of, hey, we got it right, you know, we got the quarterback, we got the coach, we're in the right direction. Like at that point, there's value in just getting, like, making sure you don't miss on the player that you got to bring in, you know, like the, so the next wave is all about, okay, we've, we've, the foundations are good. Now let's start adding pieces. So you do that by the draft, but if you screw up one of those picks, you set yourself back like you take a step in the wrong direction or or a sideways step at minimum there's I think there's value in instead of taking whatever this pick is and spending it on an edge rusher who now needs to be good otherwise we screwed up go give it for a guy who's already good and now all right it's going to cost you a bit more but you know you you're still taking a step forward you know you're not running the risk of taking a step backwards
1: yeah, and because the financial component, I don't even cost more. You know, from maybe a trade a trade pick standpoint, but also like you're going to have three cheap years at minimum of, you know, your second and third overall pick. Like now is the time to spend on other positions, spend a receiver, maybe make a move there. You obviously have, you know, an offensive line that's all making money at this point, but, but yeah, no, I I think it makes all the sense in the world to spend a bit more on this defense. I mean, D'Amico Ryans has shown he can make a whole lot and, you know, out of the talent they have. So can Bobby Slowick on offense, get him, get him some high floor. Like, like you said, kind of, there, there's never, there's never a sure thing. All right. that, but, but you know, because you have good rookie contract players, I think you do have the ability to take some of those risks.
0: All right. Anybody else you think we need to talk about before we head over to Vic and the Boo Boo breakdown?
1: What about the receivers, who do you think needs a receiver most? Let's say of the contenders, not like a Bryce Young situation. Just who needs a boost? You know, as a pass catcher.
0: Hmm. I mean, obviously. Like, Kansas City's receiving core hasn't been good, but the emergence of Rasheed Rice, the fact that Travis Kelsey is their number one guy anyway, I don't know that they need to make a move happen. Um, If they're sort of on the other end of the phone call spectrum, right? Like, if somebody phones them with an offer that is too good to turn down, maybe they they make a move, but I don't know that they're actively phoning around trying to get a Jerry Judy or a Cortland Sutton or whoever. Like, I don't know that they need to make that kind of move. Um, Hmm. Who else would be in that list? I still feel like because of the injuries and the lack of consistency, like Baltimore could do with a receiver. Like when they're all out there, all playing at their their peak, it's a good group. But, like, that's happened maybe one or two games so far this season. If they them getting reinforcements, I certainly don't think would hurt. Uh, who else would I definitely think is in need of a receiver? Honestly, it's not too many teams.
1: I would just throw in, I don't know if they're interested at all. It's early, but, like, I'm starting to get worried about the long-term viability of Jameson Williams in Detroit and if he's actually going to be a thing or not. Uh and Josh Reynolds is playing the best football of his career maybe right now. He's obviously got great chemistry with Jared Goff, but you know, and Sam LaPorta is one of the best young tight ends we've ever seen, but but if if they don't have a lot of confidence in, in Williams, like maybe they go out and get an outside receiver, a different skill set than the, you know, the tight end and Amon-Ra, I don't know. Maybe maybe it could make sense cuz he just it's just there's no consistency to speak of whatsoever there right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you're probably right to be at least starting to get concerned. Um, I don't know if it's enough to make you make a move at this point. I think Khalif Raymond can do some of the things Jamison Williams yeah. can as well. So they've they've kind of got a, a backup plan in house. Um, and I just think it's probably too soon to give up on him, like which you would effectively be doing by bringing in someone else to do that skill set. So sure. I get the concern. I, I doubt it's enough to make them make a move at this point, but. Well, maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, no, good point. The corner for them makes more sense maybe. A bunch of teams could probably use corner them, Pittsburgh, etc. But anyway, it's time for the Boo Boo Breakdown with Mr. Victroja.
0: Yeah, but before we get into that, we've got to say that this podcast is brought to you by Price Picks. Um, now, for the Prize Picks, the masterful work... By the great ZT, Zach Tantillo. What do we got for this week? Tony Pollard, uh, more than 0.5 pass rush receiving touchdowns. That's uh, where's that? Dallas against the Rams. Adam Thielen, more than 65.5 receiving yards uh, against the Houston Texans. Austin Eckler, more than 0.5 pass rush receiving touchdowns. Uh, And Kirk Cousins, more than one and a half passing touchdowns. That is the prize picks. Majesty created by the great ZT. Let's see how he manages to do uh, next week. What is Price Picks? It's a skill-based real money daily fantasy sports game. How does it work? You pick two to six players like we just did, and if they'll go for more or less than their Price Picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Price Picks adds a ton of excitement to the sports viewing experience. Watch your progress update in real time, win up to 25 times your entry amount, and cash out your winnings with quick scoring, settling, and withdrawals. At Price Picks, you're not competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections. Price Picks entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Price Picks offers frequent discounts, bonuses, and other exciting offers. You can even pick in-game projections after a game has started, which includes halves, quarters, periods, and more. Go to pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use the code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepicks.com Slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's been the prize picks, uh, information, infomercial information during this, and now we'll head over to Vic for the boo boo breakdown. All right, back in with us this Friday, as ever, to talk through injuries on the Boo Boo Breakdown, as it has been nicknamed, is our guy, Vic Troa. How's it going, Vic? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. Good. Not bad. So let's start this with the uh, what will be end up being a weekly segment on Deshaun Watson and his shoulder injury. Um, they put him back in the game. He gets re-injured. He also gets potentially concussed at the time. They check him out for that. But it turns out, effectively he's re-aggravated that injured shoulder and this whole situation just seems to be getting sort of more and more bizarre like now it seems that he is conventionally injured and definitely out and not playing because he has a shoulder injury but it's not like it's a new shoulder injury it's the same thing and yet he's been medically cleared as they've been saying for weeks and is only so that they threw him out there in such a fashion that what a a handful of plays in, he's got re-injured. Right. There is a uh, a very interesting dynamic to this whole thing.
2: I mean, we've mentioned before about how they thought it was a contusion Mm. at first, which wouldn't have lasted this long. Um, Also, the dynamic of he is in a huge contract, a lot of pressure on him, and coming off of a shoulder injury like he had, I did expect him to be back, but then when more and more information came out, it was apparent that it was the rotator cuff, and we talked last week about the subscapularis muscle of his rotator cuff, which appears to be injured, is the one that they primarily recruit when you throw your arm across your body. Which also tells me that if it's pretty damaged to the point of where he was throwing ducks like he was last game, you know he's in pain. When he went out last game... uh, And I initially saw the video, I was watching film and I said, ah, this is definitely a concussion clearance. The concussion protocol and into the blue tent, actually happened after they looked at his shoulder. I, I think that somebody called down, just said, hey, check him off for a right. concussion. That's not even an issue. What really is an issue is that he's had ongoing rotator cuff inflammation where there's more damage than we thought. Um, seeing what I'm, I'm now expecting to be like a rotator cuff strain, and maybe even if there is a partial tear,
0: I think he's gonna be out for a little bit longer. So there's, is this, um, you know, we keep talking about sort of this is now worse than we thought it was from the outside. Is this worse than they thought it was, or like what? I don't understand the the dynamics of what has been happening there because, from almost the outset, it has been a very weird messaging coming out from them, right? Like it's it sounded a lot more benign than it certainly looks like it's actually been, and you had these weeks long. Uh, things of everybody going well. He's been medically cleared. Why isn't he playing? And that's how you get to these questions of Why, does he even want to be out there, right? And it's right. like that's that's come because of team messaging. If they'd come out from the outset and said, yeah, like he's damaged this muscle that's pretty critical to throwing a football. He's going to be out for a while, and he'll be back when we can get him on the field, right? Nobody would be talking about this. It would just be another shoulder injury, and sure, it's been lingering maybe longer than we thought it would, but. Like, they've created this whole shitstorm. Right. And, Sam, you and
2: I know about team medical talk, right, like where they might come out and give you <coughs> the minimum, right? And they, I, I think at first, like, when they said he had a contusion of his shoulder, um, maybe there was more that they knew and there was the minimum. But what I'm seeing now, because the fact that they actually cleared him to play and let him play, is they didn't know the severity of it. Right. They would never have put him out there if they would have thought the severity of him – um, getting more injured in his rotator cuff, especially on a throwing arm, uh, that that just wouldn't have happened. So I do think that there was just a little bit of like a misdiagnosis, or maybe they just kind of overlooked it a little bit, considering that he was limited in practice. He was he was seen throwing in videos. So it's just one of those things that uh, when he went in, it was clear that he was still bothered, clearly he was still injured. And then Stefanski said, "You're not going back in the game at all." So
0: is this something that? Um you know could have been one thing and then when the the sort of the re-aggravation occurred it actually did make it worse as opposed to like it was one thing that became something else rather than it's been this the first the second problem all along absolutely it could have definitely been just something that
2: made worse just after a couple throws or getting tackled that was a hard thing about um seeing him go to the sideline is because he had multiple things they were dealing with but clearly that was so aggravated to the point he couldn't go back in.
0: Okay, the other player I think that's worth spending a little bit of time on is Jalen Ramsey, mm-hmm. who sounds like he's returning and could potentially even play this week, according to Adam Schefter, which apparently was news to Jalen Ramsey. But still. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what we thought might keep him out for almost the entire season, I mean, October, the end of October, it looks like his return date. Yeah, so when you have a me- meniscus repair,
2: it, doesn't necessarily tell you like how severe that was. Uh, for Jalen Ramsey to come back, I mean, yeah, this is great timing, but maybe we were just looking at something that was um, more on the lighter side of like a full tear. Like there's certain meniscus tears, like a bucket handle, and that are pretty severe where he may have just not had um, a tear to that extreme. His rehab has clearly gone well, and they wouldn't put him out there if he wasn't uh, able to sustain the loads of like really aggressive jumping and cutting because um, as we we mentioned in previous episodes that, that that a meniscus is like a cushion. So it is a shock absorber. Right. So especially when you're playing in a defensive back position, you are cutting, jumping, and running constantly he knows that if his meniscus is able to handle that or not. So if he's already cleared to go, like I don't see anything as far as like a setback for him because they won't put him out there if he's not 100%. And
0: 100% is going to be, you know, full Jalen Ramsey or there's going to be a sort of adjustment period of, you know, you're physically fine, but you might take a while getting back to what you used to be.
2: Yeah, I would expect a little bit of an adjustment period, especially uh, anybody who hurts their knee to the point of where you're gonna have surgery, you have a little bit of that hesitation too, right? Like right. you just have a little bit of you that's like, do I really trust this knee? Is it gonna give out on me? Um, especially with meniscus injuries like that, sometimes it does feel like a player, sa- they will report it feels like it's giving out or collapsing. So he's just gonna have to really gain that trust over the next couple weeks and then he should For be. For
0: something ready. like that, um, um does once you've had the surgery and the repair and, and all that kind of thing does the pain disappear like it's it's done and then so the, it's a mental thing like you sort of you just don't trust the knee, but there's no actual pain there or anything. Yeah, the pain's going to be relatively
2: gone. Some of the pain that he might get, I mean, if there is a little bit of swelling or soreness after being on it, um, because you can't replicate in rehab what a full game is going right. to give you. So yeah, there can be some soreness and stuff there where you'd be really concerned if like he's feeling sharp, sudden pains when he's cutting and jumping every rep. So um, obviously they wouldn't put him in there if he had that, though. Sure. But so,
0: theoretically, mm-hmm. like at this point in his development, and they're like, okay, you're, you're playing this weekend, I mean, he's not experiencing pain in that knee generally,
2: like, at all. Yep, just a Most little likely. bit of soreness, and then I'd say afterwards they're going to do everything they can to just mitigate that pain and swelling and put him back out there.
0: All right, let's talk some uh, big-picture injury trends yeah. now that we've got, you know, a chunk of the season underway. Um, you were talking before we went on about how there seems to be more and more uh receivers in particular going deeper into their careers age-wise and not running into these injury issues that um have typically become a problem once receivers reach a certain age right absolutely so as
2: wide receivers age and they hit about a 27 to 28 um age range it's interesting because you see them spike in their injuries in a given season and so like if you take collectively wide receivers um, f- only forty eight percent of them in a season play every game, and average number of games is about two that are missed but then when you get up to um, older twenty seven or twenty six i mean <laughs> older just <laughs> right. respectively to that um, uh, basically you 're about eighty percent of the people twenty seven or twenty eight or older miss two games so like I mean that number jumps like crazy and it kind of falls into the the line of As you age, it's a big indicator of injury prediction. It's just, it's. The, the more wear and tear on your body. But this year, it's really re- unique because, I mean, some of our top receivers have been very durable and they're in that age range and they're still performing at a high level. I mean, I'm looking at Tyreek Hill, he's 29. You have Devontae Adams, 30. Cooper Cup is coming back and now hopefully he's healthy after his hamstring stint. And then even like Stefan Diggs, these guys are playing at a really high rate at an older age, and it's just not really following the trend, which I thought is pretty interesting. I mean, you think about Devontae Adams. He's at almost 95% of his career games he's played. Uh, Diggs is 93. Hill is 83. Those are high numbers. They don't miss a lot, and that's kind of
0: opposite of what the trends in history have shown. All of them, though, with the exception of Diggs, I think, off the top of my head, have picked up injuries. Like... Devonte Adams battled through that shoulder injury. Mm-hmm. It just didn't put him out of the game. Um, Tyreek Hill has been dealing with a few different things. He was on the injury report with the hip, right, mm-hmm. this week. Um, so, like, they picked up injuries. They just haven't actually been put out by them yet. Exactly. And that's where, like, the huge difference is, is, like, you
2: see, like, people get banged up. You know, um, uh, one of my favorite quotes is that there's um, – Dr. Chow said that there's six medical personnel – at every single game for a reason. Not because the injury report just shows like, hey, there's only three people here that are hurt. Everybody's banged up. And you're just dealing with these minor things. So players like that who just know their body, and they learn how to train through it, and they have limited practices. and they can make it on Sundays and that's what's really interesting about this is because it's actually opposite of what the trends show in history like these guys they would be out multiple multiple weeks and I mean I also look at people like Julio Jones I think the over under for him to get hurt is probably like one right. game I mean he was he was it was littered with injuries last year but he's older so and and that's just what I found was really interesting because these players are just still playing at such an elite level and this is just a this is a this year thing this is not like a sort of trend in recent years? Yeah, this year specifically because in the past they have shown that, hey, you hit that 27, 28, 80% of those people in that age group are missing games. But the opposite is really strange because, you know, when you're a running back at 27 or 28 years old and you're still playing at a high level, you're in that elite status. You're like that Adrian Peterson status and, um, you know, only – I'd say 28% of running backs play every game in a given season and they miss an average of like 3.3 games. But when you, the opposite of wide receivers, when you get to that upper age range, they actually really don't miss a lot of games. And I think it's because they're
0: just those freak of natures. Yeah. Like if you're, it's, it's like, if you're still hanging around the NFL in your mid thirties, you, <laughs> you're probably durable anyway. Right. Like Latavius Murray, I think they were saying last night is the oldest running back in the NFL right now. And he's 33. Yeah. It's like they just don't play at that point. So if you're still around at that stage it's probably because they know you're you're around, you know, they know you're yeah. going to be there every single week even if you're not a great running back. They they've comf- they're confident at that point that hey, at least he's going to be around every week, you know. Right.
2: Right. So and th- it's and it's interesting cuz like you see players like that um, who as they they hit that I mean, later age They also just know their body better, Um, but this year what we're seeing is a little bit of opposite of that because I'm seeing CMC on that list, Nick Chubb, Eckler, James Conner, Raheem Mostert, Jamal Williams, all of these guys that fall into that category are actually getting hurt. So. The, this year is um, just a little bit different as far as outliers between the running backs and wide receivers in that sense.
0: We talked about this maybe the first show we did with you um, at one point about injury proneness or mm-hmm. otherwise, right? And how there are certain people that you know, may not start off injury-prone, but once they get that first one, it's going to keep going and keep going. What about the other end of the spectrum where what is with people that seem bulletproof? Like, guys that are just built out of granite and will never get injured, no matter how much they play, no matter how long they go, no matter what happens to them, it's impossible to hurt certain people. Like, what the hell is with those people? And this isn't just a football thing. Like, I think all of us know somebody who is just like physically impenetrable and cannot be destroyed in by anything you know like any kind of day-to-day walk of life thing that would leave any of us with like a you know broken ankle or like they just shake it (laughs) off and keep on trucking right those outlier statistics i mean
2: the joe thomas the frank gores like all of these people who just are physically able to withstand so much i don't know the science behind it i mean i would say half of it is just luck yeah. Like, they just didn't get hit this way or that way. The other half is they probably do the right things for their body, and they're freaking tough. And
0: they just can, they can handle those bumps and bruises, and, and they just keep on grinding. I was listening. I forget where, what the show was, but George Kittle was talking about how, um, like, at this point in his life, his week during the season is just football or recovery. And it just goes from one to the other. Right? Like all of the time that he has that isn't being spent on football is being spent recovering from football. Yep. Um, but even in that conversation, he was saying, but there are people that don't do that and I don't know how they survive. Like, there are (laughs) guys that just don't, like he, you know, has spent a ton of money to get all this stuff in his house so that he can spend a little bit more time at home, but, you know, he's listing off, like, hyperbaric chambers and blah, blah, all the crap that he's doing. And he's like, but there are people that don't, and I do not understand how these people can get in a car crash every weekend and then just rock up, do practice, walkthroughs, lift, whatever none of the recovery you know uh, recuperation um, rehabilitation stuff and are fine it doesn't make any sense to him and that's you know, professional athletes saying that as opposed to like one of us going, I don't know how that works. Down the road, we're just going to find this like genetic
2: trait of these people or some type of chromosome. And they're like, oh,
0: you have this? That's why you're going to last You have this. You will be good. You like It's one of the things they're going to test for at the combine is, are you one of these bulletproof human beings that is never going to break no matter how much like physical trauma you're put under? I mean, Brett Favre was clearly one of those guys. Mm -hmm. It's not that he never got injured, but it... Like a hell of it took a hell of a lot more to injure Brett Favre than it did other quarterbacks. Yep. Absolutely. That guy was bulletproof for the majority of his career and then yep. eventually he hit, you know, forty one years old or whatever and that stopped being a magic trick. But right. Right. like the difference between, you know, a Brett Favre and a Tony Romo on that spectrum must be like two ends of the the whole thing. And some sometimes it's just you can't explain.
2: Like me- medically I wish I knew the answer to that but then you just have to tip your hat to these
0: guys and be like good for you you played 15 seasons and barely missed a game yeah you know? and that's like you know it's, the, it's not going to explain everything but like one of the reasons Jerry Rice's numbers are in the stratosphere is because he very rarely got injured I mean mm-hmm. he tore an ACL one time and missed like most of a season but like Jerry Rice generally speaking played all the time and did it until he was 40 something right? right so his numbers are like one and a half times anybody else's and when you start projecting out you know how long until Julio whoever gets to Jerry Rice it's like well what you're not doing is factoring in what you talked about that there's a most of the time they're gonna miss at least two games. If they're unlucky, they're gonna miss more of those games. And see, if it's five seasons, you probably have to think in terms of six or seven because you're not even factoring in injuries, which are gonna derail it all the way along.
2: Yeah, and I kinda kinda laugh too, because I think of then in the middle, you have like people like Matthew Stafford, who's always injured, but he just is so tough. He plays through like a broken vertebrae too. So there's some of that dynamic and there's like how much are these guys just pushing through pain in a game just to be on the field.
0: All right, anything else you want to hit before we uh, wrap it up this week? Well, I'm just getting another good week of football ahead of us, so I'm excited. All right, let's go. That's it for the Boo Boo Breakdown and, in fact, the PFF NFL podcast this week. Thank you for watching, and we will be back on Monday.